Welcome to the New Books Network. It's not just Donald Trump. There's now a long list of leaders who have or want authoritarian powers. Russia's Vladimir Putin, Saudi Arabia's Mohammed bin Salman, China's Xi Jinping, Hungary's Viktor Orban and India's Narendra Modi. Well, the Financial Times journalist Gideon Rachman has studied these men and a few others too for his book, The Age of the Strongman. And uh, he joins us now. So uh, thanks for that, Gideon. And the first obvious question really uh, I've just listed some of the strong men who you include in your book what do they have in common well and thanks for for having me on first of all but look I mean I think they've got a, a, quite a lot in common a surprising amount in common given the immense diversity of the political systems that they represent uh, you wouldn't really think that you could meaningfully link Xi Jinping with you know, Viktor Orban or, or even, a you know, an American president. And I, I even have Boris Johnson in there as a sort of outlier. So uh, I think when you, when you look at it, though, their political appeals are quite similar in some respects. They're all what I call nostalgic nationalists, so that they all believe that the country is in some sort of crisis, or at least that's their appeal. You know, Trump famously said, make America great again. And all of these leaders are saying something similar. Um, Xi Jinping's pitch is the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Narendra Modi talks about uh, India having suffered terribly, not just under the British Empire, but under the Mughal Empire. But this is India's chance and Hindus specifically chance to shine again. Obviously, Vladimir Putin's project is to a large extent about trying to reclaim or as he would see it, safeguard Russia's status as a great power. Uh, perhaps reclaim some of the glory years of the Soviet Union. So that's a common element. I think another common element is a personality cult. They start from this premise that the, the nation is in crisis and therefore extraordinary measures are needed. And then they say, I'm the guy who can fix this. Trump, again, always very quotable, says in uh, his 2016 speech to the Republican convention, I alone can do it. That's a key to a lot of these, these people's uh, appeals. Now, you pitch it there in terms of, of nationalism and looking back to great national times, as it were, but it, it can be a religious appeal, can't it? Because if, if you get bin Salman in Saudi Arabia and Imran Khan, who probably came on the scene or, you know, is too obscure of your, your book, but, you know, he's, he's exactly the same, actually, but it, it, it's Islamism too, in his case. Yeah, and I think that there is actually often a strong religious element so that... Obviously, with Modi, he's a very devout Hindu. His party is a Hindu nationalist party. Erdogan, who we haven't mentioned so far, very similar. You know, he is somebody who is an Islamist. And for a while, the West thinks, oh, this is the guy who's going to kind of reconcile Islamism and liberalism. And that turns out to be naive. But I mean, there was a very strange week, actually, where in the same week, Erdogan turns up at the Hagia Sophia and turns it back into a mosque for the first time for centuries and says, this is what we've been planning to do for, for centuries. And Modi, in the same period, is actually turning a, a destroyed mosque back into a Hindu temple uh, and, and making similar claims about, you know, standing up for the faith. But even Putin, actually, uh, in a rather strange remark he made to the head of the European Commission, Jose Manuel Barroso, when he was visiting Moscow, uh, he said to Barroso, you know, you've got to realise there are only 800 million of us. And uh, Barroso said, sorry, what do you mean, 800 million of what? 
he said 800 million Christians in the world. And his, his Russian nationalism is very much tied up with Orthodox Christianity. So yes, I think, you know, another way of putting it is that these leaders, as well as being nationalists, are also cultural conservatives. And in different contexts, cultural conservatism and religion are very closely linked. So the way you describe it, depending where you stand in the culture wars, of course, you may not like it or you may like it, but from the way you describe it, it's all quite coherent. It's looking back, it's nationalism, it's uh, religious identity and so on. And yet, a lot of these leaders have very inconsistent and sort of hopeless ideas, don't they? I mean, you know, you've got Xi Jinping calling himself a communist when he clearly isn't Trump, the the, the, the representative of the small guy when he obviously isn't. He's enriching himself and his family. And there are no coherent ideologies. Is that right? Well, I mean, I think that there there often are deep inconsistencies of the sort that you can, you, you, you've just highlighted there. I think partly because Another characteristic that is common to a lot of these leaders are they're, they're what I call simplists. Because their whole pitch is the nation's in crisis, you need me. And also the nation is in crisis because it's been betrayed by the elite. But it's sort of often the national elite in cahoots with a globalist elite. Uh, they tend to say, look, these horrible elites will tell you that it's all frightfully complicated or that these... There are these international rules that we have to obey, but it's not. You know, we there is actually a simple solution out there. Whether it's in Trump's case, build the wall, or in Boris Johnson's case, take back control, or in Putin's case, invade Ukraine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But actually, you know, maybe because I'm a representative of these despised globalist classes, I tend to think that things, you know, complex problems often don't have very simple solutions that are just being ignored. And so I think that is often the roots of their incoherence, is that they harness a lot of anger and a desire to sort of cut through the Gordian knot, but it's never really that simple. And so you do end up with all these contradictions or just promises that, that, that aren't delivered upon. I mean, you mentioned she just to elaborate on him briefly, saying, well, you know, he's a communist, but he clearly isn't. I would don't think he is economically in the sense that he is, you know, he inherited a capitalist, uh, flourishing capitalist economy, at least part of it. And but he has cracked down a bit on the private sector. You know, he's clashed with the big Internet giants in, in China. And I think politically he's a communist. He really does believe in the Communist Party and in uh, tight central control and in the party as the vanguard of the people and all of that. He's a Leninist. He may not be a Marxist. Yeah. You've mentioned Boris Johnson a couple of times. So let me uh, just you know, do the obvious thing, which is challenge his inclusion in the list. Yeah. And I was trying to think why he doesn't fit. And I guess I guess most of these men would jail. Some would kill their opponents. Mm -hmm. Johnson wouldn't. Fair enough. He hasn't. And I, you know, let's be generous to him and say he wouldn't. Although, you know, I think a lot of these people's behavior depends on context. You know, you don't know what anybody's going to do. You put, you put Boris Johnson or even me in, into, you know, the Chinese Communist Party in, in charge, you know? Well, well, I'm, I'm not sure. He doesn't strike me as a man, sort of deeply a principled individual. But, but let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's not a killer. I think that's, that's, that's true. So why include him? Well, I think firstly, because part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to tell the story of 20 years of global history. Uh, which I think is in large part a, about a backlash against globalization, about a backlash 
against the, you know, the annoying phrase of the liberal international order. But that is what it's about it, in terms of nationalism and uh, this kind of macho style of politics. And I think Brexit is a very important part of that story. In my mind, the story starts actually almost too neatly on the 31st of December 1999 when uh, Putin comes to power. But 2016 is a critical year because that's the year that you discover that nostalgic nationalism actually has a big constituency in the West, as well as, uh, you know, in all these other countries we've discussed. And that's because the twin events of Brexit and uh, Donald Trump's election. And those elections, I think, were those uh, events were, I think, linked in the minds of the people uh, involved. You know, Trump was actually in Britain on the day of Brexit. And he immediately says, you know, this shows we're going to win in November. And Steve Bannon once said to me, actually, uh, that he the moment he knew that Trump would win was when Britain voted for Brexit, because in some senses, the constituencies are similar. They it's non-urban, less educated, disgruntled anti-globalists. And, you know, Trump was saying, make America great again. Well, I think Brexit was partly about make Britain great again. Now, now, you could say, OK, fine, the appeals are the same, but Johnson doesn't behave like Trump and he doesn't take it to the extremes of Trump. But but he does flirt with Trumpism quite explicitly, actually, when he resigns from the May government. He says, you know, one of the problems is that we're being way too sort of respectful in our dealings with the European Union and we should behave more like Donald Trump in the way that we deal with them, you know, break the furniture, break the rules, cause a row. And and, uh, and and then he sort of attempts to do that when he comes in, not perhaps to massive effect, but he does it on his own party. He kicks out like 20, 25 of the most senior members of the Tory party, which is pretty unprecedented. And of course, he breaks the law by proroguing parliament and suspending it effectively and has to be corrected by the Supreme Court. Now, where he, he he parts from Trump is Trump, I suspect, would not have accepted a court's verdict on that and would have said it was unfair, rigged, etc. Johnson is still enough of an establishment figure not to do that. But I think he has some of the sort of strongman thing that the rules don't really apply to me. And we see that working out right now. You know, he is the first British prime minister to have been convicted of breaking the law while in office. Now, you, you, you've sort of talked about the, in, in a way, the positive ideological reasons that these people exist. In other words, this nostalgic nationalism. Uh, there's also another way of looking at it, which is the circumstances that existed in global politics that allowed them to emerge. And you've listed a few of those in the book. So there's the, the crash, of course, 2007, eight crash the advent of social media platforms and the post-truth world. So th- th- there's a sort of environment which enabled this, right? Yeah, I think, you know, in a way, the most difficult bit is trying to say, well, why did this all happen? Because it's it's relatively easy to look at the record and say, OK, well, what are these people saying? What do they have in common? Saying, well, why did it happen? Why did they all emerge at the same time is, is trickier. But I mean, I think that inevitably it has to be you know, if you're building a theory of why it happened, a mix of, of, of factors. And I would point briefly to some economic factors, some social cultural factors, some technological factors, and also just political fashion. You know, on the economic front, I think you can point to the massive uh, rise in inequality in the West, partly because there's a surge in wealth at the top end. But but then you obviously have a lot of deindustrialization to do with the uh, globalization and you have a sign of trouble in the united states when the uh life expectancy of white men 
uneducated white men begins to actually fall, which is similar to what happened in the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And the economist Angus Dayton calls this deaths of despair. Uh, a lot of them sort of drug addiction, alcohol abuse, that kind of thing. Those are the constituency of people who I think are looking for a saviour and maybe for a strongman figure. And it's not confined to the United States. I think it's a similar profile of voters who go for, say, Marine Le Pen in France, Brexit in the UK, and indeed Fiona Hill, who's the uh, former Russia advisor to Trump, said that actually she saw some similarities with what had happened in Russia, company towns where the, the jobs had just gone and people looked for a kind of figure like Putin. On the social level, I think that one of the things that is quite striking is that often the strongman leaders are very anti-migration or anti-Muslim or anti-migrant. They're majoritarians and a lot of their pitch about why the nation is in danger is because its kind of ethnic character is being diluted. You know, that's why Trump's most famous early pictures are build the wall and the attempt to ban all Muslims from coming to the United States. But you have similar things, obviously, Viktor Orban in Hungary, who is the most Trump-like leader within the EU, shoots to international fame by building his own wall to try to uh, keep Muslim refugees out of Hungary and out of the European Union. Netanyahu in Israel also makes an appearance in the book. He's another big wall builder, actually. And again, it's about, and it's, you know, passes legislation saying Israel explicitly must be a Jewish state because a lot of his pitch is that the state is in danger from, from minorities. So there's, that's the social bit and the migration bit. Then there's the technology. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of this has happened in the era of social media. And a lot of these leaders are very adept users of social media. And it's a medium that's made for a kind of a Bolsonaro or a Duterte, because these are people who, while accusing everybody else of publishing fake news, are actually the, the biggest purveyors of it themselves. So uh, a medium that's not fact-checked is perfect for them. And also a medium that deals in short emotional pitches, such as, which, you know, we all know about the idea of virality on social media. Well, what goes viral is stuff that gets people in the guts, and they're good at that. So there's that. And then finally, I think there's just changes in political fashion so that, you know, when Putin comes to power in 2000, it was still in, you know, the famous kind of Fukuyama end of history period. There doesn't really seem much of an alternative to liberal democracy as a governing ideology. But partly by setting his face against it, Putin begins to change that. You know, by 2007, 2008, he's openly uh, contemptuous of aspects of liberal democracy and certainly of the West. He'd started by being much more respectful. Then he has the Georgia invasion and, and so on. And I think he creates, uh, as his own spokesman Peskov says, a model of an alternative style of leader who's not this kind of cool technocrat like Obama or Merkel, who's you know highly educated, softly spoken. He's this guy who poses bare-chested with a gun. And actually, as Peskov points out, there is a market for leaders like that, and you get a bunch of them. Uh, Duterte is, again, you know, very explicitly thuggish. Bolsonaro is ex-army. And even Xi Jinping, although he's, you know, doesn't do the kind of macho military stuff, is a strongman leader who looks back to Mao, who doesn't do, and is also creates a personality cult, and also uses the rhetoric of military strength and the reality of military strength. So, um, you know, as more and more of these leaders come to the fore, I think an alternative model emerges. And, and that's sort of where we are now.
So it's quite interesting you do that because um, that analysis, because I, I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, everyone would have concentrated on the economics and said, you know, you've got this neoliberal order, there's a lot of inequality, and then there's a crash, and it affects uh, people at the bottom of the uh, social ladder. And that's what explains the change. Uh, but you've just given there a much sort of broader explanation taking in you know a lot of cultural things and technological things a much a much wider way of looking at it yeah and i think i think you know the purely economic explanations are in a way the ones that liberals find easiest to cope with because they can say well yeah well we we actually agree inequality is a bad thing and you know there are things we could do about that we could raise taxes we could you know have industrial policies whatever and it doesn't require them to to make difficult moral judgments about either the people the voters or about or to face difficult policy choices because you know liberals as i say don't don't really have a problem with trying to tackle inequality when it comes to something like immigration it's much tougher you know do you say okay well there's a huge group of people out there who are very angry about uh, you know the immigrations of foreigners or very angry about muslims and we need to do something about that we need to meet their concerns uh, you know, and you've seen political parties in the West that have done it. I mean, Denmark, for example, has, you know, which is regarded as, you know, classic Scandinavian liberal country, has actually got pretty draconian refugee policies because I think they saw it as the only way of heading off the, the Danish People's Party. But from, there are others who will say, you know, you can see Boris Johnson doing it in Britain now with his plans to, you know, send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Uh, there's a lot of liberals who just won't go there. But then they, they have the difficulty that they then leave this issue to their rivals in the sort of popular strongman camps. Yeah. And, and and you haven't quite said this explicitly, but I think you you you, you may mean it. it. These leaders need an enemy. Is that part of it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, um, in fact, if you get towards the, the end of the book, there's a sort of more ideological chapter about George Soros and Steve Bannon, and also some of the kind of illiberal thinkers who are circulating in the kind of um, nationalist international, if you like. And there has been a slightly sinister vogue for a guy called Carl Schmidt, who was a philosopher, who was regarded as actually the crown jurist of Nazi Germany. Uh, he, he, he justified the emergency through which Hitler suspended democracy in Germany. Uh, and you'd think that a thinker like that would probably, you know, not be uh, regarded as somebody one should look back at much. But he's, there is a vogue for Schmidt now. And Schmidt's, one of Schmidt's key thoughts was friend-enemy, that, that politics was a, wasn't about institutions, all these liberal ideas about compromise and so on. It was, I think he said, show me who your enemy is and I'll tell you who you are. And he felt that politics should be structured around friend-enemy distinctions. And as I say, Schmidt, uh, Schmidt's back in vogue. I was a bit struck. I had a kid who was doing a university course uh, and who was doing a political philosophy course and got set an essay on Carl Schmitt. And I had never, to my shame, heard of the guy and looked him up and thought, why the hell is he being taught? You know, it's, a, it's a leading British university. But I then discovered that, you know, he's actually on the curriculum at all our main universities. He's a, on the curriculum, you know, there's an Oxford University handbook of Carl Schmitt. He's very popular as a, you know, not, not that people necessarily admire him, but they think that his critique of liberalism is important and needs to be considered. And very interestingly, Schmidt, there's a huge vote for him in China. There's a lot of the illiberal thinkers who are trying to justify Xi Jinping's views of the world have, have reached for Schmidt. And I was struck, actually, I was at a K 
Cambridge College talking to one of the fellows who, who teaches Schmidt. And he said, you know, it's very weird. I keep getting PhD applications from Chinese students who want to study Carl Schmidt. You know, when I was in Shanghai, actually, uh, talking to a friend who runs um, uh, an institute of Chinese studies at one of the universities there, and he'd said to me that he'd just had Alexander Dugin, the Russian nationalist, as a visiting fellow for three months. You know, Dugin's one of the ideologues really behind the stuff that's playing out in Ukraine now, uh, sort of rabid Russian nationalist. And I said to my friend Eric, uh, but isn't Dugan like a fascist? And he said, oh, he's not a fascist, but he, he's a big follower of Carl Schmidt. Um, and I said, well, Schmidt wasn't like a Nazi. But um, but anyway, uh, it was just interesting to see. And then I looked up Dugan's writings, and indeed he is a big follower of Carl Schmidt. So, yeah, Schmidt's friend, enemy, assault on liberalism, I think is circulating a lot in the background of all this. It's, it's absolutely fascinating that bit of the book about about Schmidt, and I wanted to ask you ask you about it. So, ju- just first of all on the Dugan stuff, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. We we, we, did, we had an earlier episode in this series with someone who's written a book on Bannon and his beliefs, which he shares with Dugan, and which come under the term traditionalism. Yeah, I know that book. In fact, it's just behind me on my shelves. <laughs> right. It's absolutely uh, fascinating what's going on because these ideas that are emerging behind the strongman are quite bizarre in many ways, as you say. I mean, well, traditionalism, as people who've listened to this series will know, involves lots of Hindu stuff yeah. and cycles of history and uh, hierarchies of priests. And, yeah, I mean, this pretty far out pretty there. Pretty wacky, yeah. Ideas. And, uh, but Carl Schmidt, I must admit, I had never heard of. So can you just, just describe for us what exactly did Carl Schmidt believe in I and mean, he was a member of the nazi party right and and what was what is it that these people are all studying now i think one way to think of him is as the princeton philosopher jan Werner muller i think called him the liberalism's most brilliant enemy and a lot of what he does is say that liberalism's ideas of free speech independent institutions that these are all just hypocrisy that really all politics is about power. Who's got it? Who wields it? Who uses it against who? And the the liberal idea of setting up a kind of system that arbitrates between different opinions, that tolerates different opinions, and that has checks and balances, that that is actually just a hypocritical guise for power. And that, incidentally, is why Schmidt is popular among a lot of people on the left, because that's sort of what they believe as well. So Schmidt, that's one of, I think, probably his key idea in the assault on liberalism. He's got, a, you know, he's quite a fecund philosophy. He writes a lot about a lot of stuff. He, as I say, is important on the friend-enemy distinction. He also is a believer that there's a kind of historical conflict between land powers and sea powers, uh, and that the sort of Anglo-Saxon liberals are sea powers, and that the land, you know, that, that Russia, Germany, etc., represent something different, more rooted, and that these interests will clash. I, I can't quite remember why he thinks that being a sea power leads to liberal hypocrisy, but there's something in there. Um, well, presumably because you, 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 you're subject to more influences, presumably. Maybe, and also maybe that you've set up all these sort of bogus rules, you know, governing uh, laws of the sea and so on. But uh, but anyway, so, 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 so that's... Uh, and Schmidt develops a lot of his ideas in the 1920s, is a professor of law at what is now Humboldt University, uh, was Berlin University. And he um, plays an important role 
in justifying the state of emergency in in Nazi Germany, and indeed is, is explicitly quite anti-Semitic. It justifies a lot of what the Nazis does do. Now, his defenders say that he, he, he then drifts away from the Nazis, but he certainly stays in Berlin to the bitter end, to, to 1945. And actually, another key tenet or famous saying of Schmidt is, sovereign is he who decides the exception. Now, what does that mean? Basically, what it means is that that political sovereignty and other pa- who wields ultimate power is linked to the ability to declare a state of emergency or to declare an, an exception. The person who is sovereign is the person who can suspend the rules. Now, the reason that that was significant in 1933 is that's exactly what Hitler does, of course, is that after the Reichstag fire, they start governing by decree, they suspend the constitution, and that establishes Hitler's sovereignty power over the system. But then I think a lot of dictators or would-be dictators become interested, maybe without consciously channeling Schmidt, start playing with this idea of the state of emergency. And that's often a very dangerous sign, you know, so that Trump in on January the 6th, some of the people doing legal justifications around him were looking for a reason to declare a state of emergency mm. that would allow you to suspend the normal operations of the law. Obviously, you know, famously in sort of a Latin American coup situation, that's almost one of the first things you do is you say it's a national emergency, we're suspending the constitution. Schmidt was the guy who sort of provided that justification for a lot of that. And he has a sort of afterlife after the Second World War. He's not imprisoned or put on trial or anything. He becomes sort of persona non grata. He doesn't have a formal university position, but he has a lot of acolytes who come to visit him. And he is also oddly, uh, maybe not oddly, very popular in Franco's Spain. So he gives a lot of lectures there. And uh, and then later, when the sort of backlash against liberalism starts, I don't quite know whether you put it the 90s or the 2000s, he is rehabilitated as a thinker, as a thinker, you know, part of a canon. And that's where he is now. And actually, you, you mentioned Bannon. Um, I had a funny conversation, sort of funny in a rather dark way with the former German ambassador to Washington, who when I actually, oddly, I, I read an article criticizing Schmidt and this uh, guy got in touch with me and he, like a lot of top Germans, he's a former lawyer and Schmidt was a legal philosopher. And he said, you know, I think you're being a bit unfair to Schmidt. He did have some quite interesting ideas, of et cetera, et cetera. And then we got talking and I said, you know, do you think Bannon's ever read Schmidt? And he said, yeah, I think he might have. And I said, well, why do you think that? And he said, well, I'm afraid I had him to breakfast in Washington. I gave him a copy because I thought he might interest him. And I thought, thanks a lot, you know. Uh, that, that was uh, not, not really a great idea. But whether that explicitly influenced Bannon, I don't know. Um, as you say, there's more evidence that he read people like Julius Evola, who's an Italian fascist uh, philosopher, who actually Schmidt corresponded with. But it, it's part of, I think, the sort of intellectual milieu of a lot of these people. Just listening to you describe Schmidt's ideas reminded me, or just sort of prompted a memory of, of, of this um, sovereign individual idea. I don't know if you've come across Jacob Rees-Mogg, one of the leaders of Brexit, his father, mm. who used to be an editor of the Times in London, wrote this book about sovereign individuals, basically a, a higher caste above the international order, in a sense almost ultimate globalists, I think, sort of not having to pay tax anywhere and beating the system in each country. Have you ever come across any of that and connected that to, to these, uh, these thinkers you're talking about? Not so much, although I think you're right, there is a connection between Rees-Mogg and Trumpism, definitely. You know, I remember I once managed to inveigle myself into Mar-a-Lago uh, via 
a guy called Chris Ruddy, who is a, a newspaper owner uh, who's a mate of Trump's and a member of Mar-a-Lago. And actually, if you ever want to get close to Trump, just pony up for the membership and you can spend your time sort of hanging out with him at the bar there. But anyway, R- Ruddy was close to Mog. And we, I mean, he was saying, you know, the last person I picked up at this hotel was Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know. And uh, so um, there's, um, I mean, what you were describing, there's more like a kind of Superman thing. And obviously that's an idea that a lot of uh, far-right thinkers have been attracted to. But I think on the other hand, to some extent, they they would see their opposition as these rootless people who pay no tax because they, their rhetoric, at least, not necessarily the reality, is that we're the guys who stand up for the regular people, we're the nationalists, we're connected to a nation. And their enemy, very often, is George Soros, who is the classic, you know, financier, probably has two or three passports, born in Hungary, moved to Britain, moved to the United States, has business interests all over over the world supports i would regard them as philanthropic causes all over the world but they see him as this sort of evil manipulator it's obviously not coincidental that he's jewish and a financier um and he is in a way you know maybe you know to to some extent he might even be reese's mog's theory of the sovereign individual but they are have i think some of the 1930s suspicion of the of finance and of the international now, when you describe Schmidt having these ideas about liberals basically hiding with their with their sort of policies and principles the real power relations that exist mm. and and you know that that's the at the core of things, um, it it yeah obviously that feeds into what Putin Erdogan Orban all these people would say about Western hypocrisy yeah. and and it, it it made me wonder about this because it seems to me a lot of these leaders started out craving Western acceptance. Yeah. I mean, Putin did, Erdogan did, Imran Khan in Pakistan was a Western playboy in London. Yeah. You know, he, he, he was living the most Western lifestyle. Modi was banned by the West from even getting uh, visit visas yeah. uh, to the West. So they've all got this really complicated... Xi sends his daughter to Harvard. Right. So they, 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 there is this desire for acceptance by the West, yeah. and yet a rejection by Western liberals, by the West, of of their ideas and their policies. And I, it, I mean, do you think there is a sort of almost an inferiority complex regarding the West involved in what drives these men? Yeah, I, I think I think it's there's something like that. I mean, inferiority complex, maybe a slight oversimplification, but it's close. You know, I think it's a sort of love, hate or spurned thing going on. And of course, the West is hypocritical. I mean, you know, anybody trying to run Western foreign policy commits acts of hypocrisy because on the one hand, we do vaguely try to support human rights and so on. On the other hand, we deal with dictators all the time uh, or ignore human rights violations when it's convenient because we have some other interest. It's not hard to point to those hypocrisies. But I think that I would say that mostly... You know the West is on the is on the right side, or that they're trying to do it in the interests of of a greater cause. You know they're picking the the most dangerous enemy. So if, if you take Russia now, you know we're doing deals with Mohammed bin Salman. We're turning a blind eye to some of the stuff that happens in India and so on because we perceive a greater danger. And sometimes you just have to do that pragmatically. But it does involve hypocrisy. And to to return to your question, yeah, I mean I think that. I think that for a lot of these leaders, there is a kind of uh, a spurned moment or maybe a moment, you know, 
I, I think I think for Erdogan, you know, it's the it's the EU application and the fact that it's going nowhere. But whether he ever really wanted to join the EU is is perhaps questionable. I think also that there's also a threat thing going on though. I think that for for Putin probably the turning point is the color revolutions that break out in Ukraine and in other former Soviet republics uh, in 2004, 2005, and this sort of feeling that, oh my God, you know, this could happen in Moscow. And being a former intelligence officer, he doesn't believe that anything's spontaneous. He sees the hand of the West behind it. And maybe, you know, in a bit slightly sort of Schmittian way, he says, he thinks, you know, they're going on about it's all principle and liberalism and supporting human rights and all of that. Actually, this is a power play and they're out to get me. And I think that Putin, at quite a deep level, does believe the West is enraged by what he regards as the West hypocrisy. And if you look at some of what he says, you know, justifying the invasion of Ukraine, I was talking to an American friend of mine who said, you know, read that text, it's like he's trolling us, in the sense he's almost quoting back at the West some of the justifications that were used uh, over Kosovo or were used over Iraq saying, you know, there's weapons of mass destruction or, you know, I'm protecting an endangered minority, which was the arguments used in Kosovo, and therefore I claim the responsibility to protect. So he he's playing, you know, taking our words and using them back against us. Partly that's just a rhetorical device, but I think it also reflects a sort of uh, a sense that, you know, I'm showing you that you're no better than me and I'm no worse than you. Yeah, I mean, because as you know, I, I do a lot of Pakistan. And yeah. That's exactly what Imran Khan, yeah, that was his whole pitch by the end. That, that That's all he was doing, was just pointing out Western hypocrisies, which, as you say, there are plenty of them, and uh, getting angry about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that explains quite a lot of the, the whole global... I mean, it's not unique to Imran or whatever. I mean, if you look... These reactions are not atypical in the, the global South, to use that slightly abused phrase, you know, that... Uh, you hear it a lot from Indians, from South Africans, etc., who will say, well, you're only getting upset about the Ukrainians because they're white. You know, you don't care about the Yemenis or the Eritreans, or not the Eritreans, the Tigrayans or whatever. I mean, to which I guess the response, partial response is there's not much evidence that, that there's much outrage anywhere about what's happening in Tigray, for example. And the only people who have made statements that I can see or big powers that have are, are the Americans. But it's true that I think that the sense of threat and probably the sort of cultural similarities do mean that Europe's reaction to Ukraine is much more powerful than, than elsewhere. And you could see that, you know, in the hands of an Imran, that would be cast as, yeah, hypocrisy, racism, you, you, you name it. And do you think Trump also played on that in, the, in that, you know, he? I remember him going on Fox and saying, we kill people abroad we don't like, we sort of murder yeah. people or assassinate them. And he was almost saying he thought the West was hypocritical. Totally. Right? I mean, that's why, you know, it was that's why part of what made him such a dream for Putin, because in fact, the, the, the full interview was where somebody says to him, but Putin's a killer, isn't he? And he says, that's right. Let me tell you, we kill a lot of people, too. And that is exactly what what the Russians and the Chinese have always argued. Uh, you know, you're, who are you to lecture us? You do all this. And, you know, it's true, the American had the drone strike program and so on, and the Americans invaded Iraq. And that still is a massive stain on America's legitimacy around the world. So, you know, there are answers to these, these arguments. 
but they're complicated answers. They're so complicated. I keep sort of working on a column on it. And I've never yet produced it because it's it's a it's a difficult thing to 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 deal with. Now, we, we both started out on many years ago on the BBC World Service, ultimate liberal globalist, really, mm-hmm. uh, the, the people working there uh, and spent much of our time pointing out these Western hypocrisies. I mean, that's what a lot of the programming was saying. Yeah. You know, America's saying one thing, doing another. And, and as you say, it's quite easy to do, really. Uh, but when you look back on that, or certainly when I look back on it, I wonder whether I was missing the big picture, really, and that these changes that are happening are more profound than what Western media outlooks like like ours w- w- was focusing on. Well, of course, we were we were in a very very different era because you know we were there in the mid eighties, just before the the triumph of liberalism, the end of history, and all of that. You know the the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then you have uh, a decade where it does seem like liberal democracy is the only game in town, and you get waves of democratization all over the world, even reaching Africa. In fact. It, you know, even before the fall of the Berlin Wall, you have a, a wave of democratization in Western Europe, Spain, Portugal, Greece, Latin America. You know, there was a 20, 20 year wave of it. And then if you look at the stats, say, that Freedom House produce, democracy, freedom in the world begins to decline around 2004 and has been what they call, we're now in the you know, 15th, 16th year of a global democratic recession. Yeah, I mean, I think that... The West's ability to pick holes in its own position is both our strength and our weakness. You know, it's our weakness in the sense that we provide arguments to people who I would argue are are a different level of, you know, oppression. I I think that, you know, there is a reason why, as you say, a lot of these people simultaneously criticise the West but buy houses in in the West and send their kids to Western universities because at some level they understand that actually... These systems are not all the same. Um, but also, I think that the West's ability to have an open dialogue is part of what makes us, you know, what we're meant to be. Um, and, uh, you know, look, thinking back at that world service, and maybe I imagined this, but I think they did say that part that was part of what we were doing, was showing what an open society looked like uh, by airing criticism. And I think that, you know, classic sign of... Strongman rule getting out of control is when they start locking up people for what they say. Uh, and that's true um, or closing down the media, you know, and that's true of obviously of Russia, China, but, you know, Turkey, a friend of mine uh, just got 18 years in jail last week. A guy called Hakan Altine, uh, who was part of the whole Osman Kavala trial. He's a classic liberal, you know, he was believed in freedom of speech. He worked for the Open Society Foundation. And, uh, you know, even in an ostensible democracy, he's being banged up for uh, for speaking his mind. And uh, I don't think that happens in, in our societies, however hypocritical we may be in other respects. So let's just uh, finally cast this forward and ask you where this is headed, because... I interviewed recently Professor Gary Gersel on his book on neoliberalism. Oh, yeah, good book. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and basically he, you know, described post-war history, welfare state controlled capitalism, regulated capitalism, whatever, uh, gave way to neoliberalism, which reigned supreme for 20, 30 years. And then we have this new age, as he puts it, of ethno-nationalism. And the question obviously arises, is it here to stay? Will it do what uh, neoliberalism do, which was win over Clinton and Blair, win over the left uh, and, and basically make its opponents uh, adopt its ideas. And, and it's, I was very interested that you mentioned Denmark. 
that's happened, has it? Where you know the the, the liberal parties, the parties of the left, have adopted anti-immigration policies. So that is then taking over the the turf of the whole yeah. polity, if you like. So so do, do you think that this is here to stay, or is Western technological educational superiority going to win through? Well, I mean, as we've sort of t- chatted about, obviously there's a whole complex of ideas. I mean, I think that. The ethno-nationalist part of it, the Danes aren't the only ones who've adapted. For example, in Australia, who pioneered uh, exporting asylum seekers to to foreign countries, the Labour Party initially opposed that and and eventually had to uh, embrace it because it was just a very popular policy. Um, So, you know, to some extent, there will be a process of accommodation. And I think that you'll see that on economic policy as well. I think that there aren't many defenders of what uh, Gary Gersel would call, uh, you know, full-on neoliberalism anymore. But I think that, I hope that the authoritarian strongman style, which is about a way of governing, uh, the creation of a personality cult, the destruction of institutions, that that won't be uh, survive. And that, you know, you mentioned a couple of cycles that where you have the sort of social, the welfare state period, about 30 years, followed by the neoliberal period of about 20, 30 years. So maybe the strongman era will also be 20, 30 years. And I think that what these cycles have in common is that an idea comes along, it looks gathers followers, it looks uh, attractive, and then the progenitors of the idea get overconfident, push it too far, and then they crash. And you might argue that's sort of happening now. I mean, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is obviously a, an appalling error, and may, uh, you know, if it doesn't lead to nuclear war, may lead to the discrediting of the Putin system in Russia. And maybe since he was the original strongman, the whole idea of strongman rule. I think Xi Jinping is in trouble in China suddenly because the whole lockdown stuff, uh, you know, you can't lock down a city like Shanghai. 25 million people, five weeks, people can barely leave their houses and it's no, not much sign it's going to be eased. So the, the strongman style is a flawed style of government because it doesn't really work to invest so much authority in a single individual who incidentally is likely to go crazy the longer they're in office. You know, after 20 years, you do become a megalomaniac unless you're very unusual. So I think it's a very flawed style. The problem is that, you know, say what you like about neoliberalism, if it was operating in democracies, there was an easy way of getting rid of it. You know, you elected a different government and did different things. Because strongmen are anti-democratic often um, and are operating in some countries where there really aren't any checks and balances left, it's very hard to get rid of them. So we're all saying, well, obviously Putin's messed up, but how, you know, will there be people on the street? Will there be a palace coup? We don't know. And I don't believe that the strongman era, even with some of the technological things that are working in its favor, will last forever because I think it's a you know, I'm not that pessimistic, to be honest, I can't be. But I think that then, you know, as we're seeing with the, the the crisis in strongman rule has led to a pretty brutal war, and there may be a lot more kind of nastiness and violence to come before the whole model is discredited. Yeah, well, one of, arguably, one of the contradictions of this nationalism is that it's bound to clash. And, yeah. and, and, the, yeah, and, and there will be places where two strongmen butt up against each other. Absolutely. It reminded me of, uh, I mean, you, I think you know the Balkans better than I do, but wasn't there a sort of great a joke? Somebody said, you know, the problem with the Balkans is there are too many great countries, greater Serbia, greater Albania, greater Croatia, and the results have been not so great. 
Um. <laughs> and I, I presume that uh, despite writing your FT column and, and trying to sort of work out what's going on, you don't yet have a, a glimmer of what will succeed ethno-nationalism. Or the strong men. Well, I don't think it'll be pure, pure liberalism. Uh, you know, it'll be, it'll vary country to country. But I, what I do hope is that this idea that Putin has been closely associated with, that countries do better if they've got like a chest-beating nationalist rather than a kind of namby-pamby liberal like a Merkel or Obama, that that will be discredited. And because I think that you know, what sense we've seen in Ukraine where it leads in the end to, to war. And if that can be uh, stamped out as an idea, discredited as an idea, that's a great start. Thank you so much for uh, a very interesting interview. Thank you, Gideon. Thanks, Owen. It's lovely to talk to you again.